Good afternoon, brethren. It's good to be together today. Wonderful time of singing praises unto God. And um, now to hear the Word of God preached through a weak man, but we are all are weak, and uh, we trust the Lord will give His special help. Um, today we do begin another book of the Bible. We preach through books of the Bible here, and um, we're going to begin another minor prophet. We just finished Joel. Uh, the book of Nahum, if you're on the email list, you've already been notified of that. And just to mention that after we finish this exposition, Lord willing, we're embarking on a long journey in the Gospel of John. So uh, be looking forward to that, be praying, already beginning some preparation for that, and looking forward to that. You might ask the question, why preach this obscure book of the Bible. In my email, remember I said, some of you probably have not even read Nahum, right? And then, and then, and then much less actually studied it. And so um, we have to remind ourselves that all Scripture is inspired by God, that's God-breathed, and is profitable for us. For what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, for what purpose? So that the man of God, or woman of God, um, may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The minor prophets are very instructive uh, for us today and easy to bring in, into application um, in the 21st century. And um, they provide much application for us. And even in this book, you see a superpower oppressing smaller and weaker nations all around them, and we can all relate to that type of oppression, difficulties, and trials. The Apostle Paul um, had said regarding Israel in that Exodus generation, right, that, they, that the lessons that happened to them are instructive for us in the New Covenant. And so, too, all of these Old Testament um, books are profitable for us. What's the main message of Nahum? God's justice or judgment is an expression of God's severity and his goodness and compassion to his people. So what's the takeaway? God does not take sin lightly, right? He, he, he sent Assyria, as we'll see, and this is going to be a, we'll learn a lot about Assyria in the, in the 7th century BC, but remember the book of Isaiah and the, in the 16, 17, 18, somewhere in there, you know, God sends Assyria to be the rod of his reproof to the nation of Israel, to flee idolatry, to seek the one true God. And so even though God would use a nation like this back then, we see that they continued to oppress. And we'll talk about some of those things. If you read 2 Kings 18 and 19, as I mentioned in the email, that you'll see one of those times with King Hezekiah. But we live in a day when many are oppressed. Watch the news. Look at the news from around the world. I don't mean necessarily CNN and Fox are going to get a very limited, narrow scope of news, but, but you know, look at BBC World and see what's going on around the world. There's a lot of oppression. And even as Judah was oppressed, we can relate to that. And I don't know what type of oppression you're going through. I do know some of you <laughs> what you've gone through even this last week, but I mean, you know... We all are going through difficulties and trials and maybe even being oppressed in the workplace, maybe being oppressed in, in other scenarios. But, um, but 
we need to re- remind ourselves that God does not sit idle. He sees all, and He will bring everything right in His time, even though it seems like He may be delaying. So as we enter this new book, we're going to have quite a bit of introductory comments to hopefully set the context, and then, believe it or not, we're going to tackle one, ver- two verses, really. The very first verse, which is introductory, and then the very next verse, which talks about God's vengeance, and, um, and that'll take up our time. But what I'm going to do is read verses 1 through 8. It is a, a, really a, a, a victory hymn to the divine warrior, Yahweh, or you might even think of Christ, the one that will come on the horse, as we see in Revelation, right? It's a, it's a, it's, it's a beautiful hymn. So let's read 1 to 8. And um, again, we're not going to get past verse 2 today, but just to give you the broader context. The Oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite, a jealous and an avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemy. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In a whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry land. He dries up all the rivers. Basham and Carmel wither, the blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the Lord and all the inhabitants. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. But the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into the darkness. Our Father, we do thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you even for a text such as this and a book such as this, which displays your immense compassion for your people, but at the same time revealing your character as a vengeful God who will not wink at sin, and who will destroy our enemies. May we take comfort, even this day, in Jesus' name. Amen. As Charlie was reading chapter 3, I had him read chapter 3 just so you could get a sense of how vivid and descriptive Nahum is. His literary style is 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 fascinating. Some scholars have actually regarded it as the most effective uh, prophet of all the old te- of all the Old Testament prophets, and that's saying a lot. One scholar says this: Nahum's poetry is fine. Of all the prophets, he is one who, in dignity and force, approaches the most nearly to Isaiah. His descriptions are singularly picturesque and vivid. His imagery is effective and striking. The thought is always expressed compactly with parallelism and such. So we see as the fall of Nineveh uh, was still future, the prophet is so confident that these events 
would occur that he describes it as already happening. It's, uh, it, but it's transpiring before the very eyes of his audience. And it's, it's like the prophetic present. Even though he's writing in advance, he's writing with such per, precision. He, he takes brush strokes. He takes a brush and, and he brush strokes and he's painting a picture of destruction. It's a word portrait of the vindication of the Lord upon the Assyrian capital. The aspects that he uses is brevity. It's a very short book, right? Brevity, uh, wordplay, and then he allusions as well. And we'll see that as we unpack and go through it. Also, what I just read, or at least verses 2 to 8, is an acrostic as well. And um, an acrostic is each line it begins with various Hebrew letters. It's a partial acrostic. And, um, and so describing that victory hymn, we see that he took the extra time for that. Several of the Psalms are acrostics, as you know. And uh, what, why, why would a writer want to use an acrostic? Well, it was beneficial for memorization, right? If you know your alphabet, A, B, C, D, the fourth verse would begin with a D, right? And so that kind of thing. But also it could, would demonstrate the skill and the precision of the writer. Who is this man, Nahum? He's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. It's like he introduces himself in verse 1, and then he disappears, <laughs> right? He doesn't bring back, oh, and then I was brought up in this town, and this and that, right? He just simply says, the oracle, or you can think the burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. So all as we know is he's from Elkosh. And we all know where that is, right? No, we don't. <laughs> Scholars fight and argue, and you know, there's really three possibilities. The reality, it's, it's, it could be an exile city, it could be a town of Galilee. Some, I even heard uh, Capernaum would be named after Nahum. Capernaum, you know. Um, but the reality is, is it just communicates that he's from a very insignificant town like Bodunk, Oklahoma or something, you know, I don't know, <laughs> sorry, anybody's from Oklahoma. Um, but you, you get the idea, it's like, I never heard of that place. And, and that's, I think, the idea here. His name means comfort. And as is true with many of the prophets, their name tends to communicate the theme of which they are to preach. Elijah means Yahweh is God. And remember last week, we looked at that scene in Mount Carmel, you know, if he is God, worship him, right? And so, um, anyway, the names often correspond to the message. Now, he prophesied somewhere in between the year 663 and 612 B.C. I'll come back to that date in a moment. He was a master of words, as I said, vivid imagery. Um, the Assyrian armies were ruthless. We're going to talk about that in a moment. They had already conquered the northern kingdom. As Charlie, I was hoping Charlie wasn't just going to preach the whole book when he got up here, but uh, save me. Thanks for saving me a little bit. Uh, just kidding. Um, but anyway, they were a ruthless, ruthless people. This is all we know about the prophet. He's from, we don't know, right? The town of we don't know. And we know his name means compassion. And we know he has a burden. 
He's communicating a vision that the Lord gave him. That's all we know. And, and we, we know little about him, and so what happens, as I said after verse 1, Nahum sort of just goes into the background, right? And the message comes to the foreground. Now the date, roughly 660 to 612, we, we know that it falls somewhere within there because the actual fall of Nineveh, of which he's prophesying about, happened in 612. So we have that as a firm date. And remember, when you're going backwards, it may sound weird, but you go back further and the numbers get bigger, right? So it's the opposite of A.D. But, um, and then we also know that, and what, what Charlie also read is 3.8 um, talks about the fall of Thebes, that city. And we know that that happened in 663. And so most scholars think that he, his prophecy probably came a few years before the actual fall, or you know, not necessarily 40 years before, but probably closer within a few years of the actual fall of Nineveh. It may have only been months. We just don't know. And so this prophet of Yahweh tells in vivid detail how this city is going to fall. Uh, I don't know if you were paying attention when Charlie read, but Horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, mass corpses, countless dead bodies. Even though the wheels of the chariot roar in such a loud way. It's like this guy's like sneak peeking behind a curtain and watching it all and then try coming back to describe it. And that's pretty much exactly what happened because it was a vision from God. Back in the 1990s, before some of you were born, uh, there was a TV show that uh, I think it went about four or five years, but it was called Early Edition. Does anybody remember that? Probably not. You'll have to go home and Google it. Even the old men don't know. So. But uh, anyway, it was a show of which this guy, a fired stockbroker in Chicago, uh, somehow this cat would deliver tomorrow's newspaper today. So he would wake up and he'd go out and it would be the next day's newspaper. And it'd be like, apartment building burns down. And so think of it, like you know tomorrow or sometime today that's going to happen. So the whole show is about him trying to prevent tragedies and loss of life, okay? And uh, so very interesting thing, but, but it's, it's almost as though uh, Nahum is given this early edition of what's going to happen. Just imagine if you had that early edition and you saw... COVID was going to come the next day. You could have went and stocked up on all the toilet paper, hand sanitizer. You could have been on top of it all, you know. Or, you know, a stock's going to crash and you could have shorted it, whatever, you know, all these types of things. But Nahum is given tomorrow's events and tomorrow in the sense of after today of the greatest city in the world. And it's remarkable. You know, that when women have their first pregnancy, there's a book, movies, all that, you know, what to expect when you're expecting, you know, and that's kind of, Naomi's saying, this is what you can expect. Now let's talk about the brutality of the Assyrians. Nineveh's roots go all the way back to Genesis 10. Remember the city of Nimrod? Well, that's where Nineveh came from. Babylon and Nineveh actually were offshoots of that empire, Babylon would symbolize, symbolize a warfare against God. And read the book of Revelation. Babylon, Babylon, you've fallen, right? So it's warfare against God. And Nineveh would symbolize warfare against man. 
and fellow humans. Years before, Assyria uh, had already conquered the northern kingdom, those ten tribes, in 722. So decades before, in 701, uh, Sennacherib caused, uh, came and taunted Judah. And uh, it's, this count is in 2 Kings 19.10. And he says this, he sends a messenger, Thus you shall say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you into saying, Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Well, Hezekiah takes that seriously, and he goes, and he lays out the message, the letter, and he prays before God. It says he prayed before the Lord, O Lord, the God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim. You are God, you alone, and all the kingdoms in the earth you have made in heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord. Hear, open your eyes, O Lord, and see, listen to the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the king of Assyria has devastated the nations and the land, well known, and have cast their gods into the fire, and they were not gods, but the work of men's hands of wood and stone. In other words, they were just idols, right? So they have destroyed them. Now, O Lord, our God, I pray, deliver us from his hand, that all the kingdoms in the earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Now, do you know what happens after this? Do you know, does God answer this prayer? Well, let me give you Sennacherib's boast of what happened with this battle first, and I'll give you the biblical version. Sennacherib's account was full of boast and pride. He says, as for Hezekiah the Jew, who would not submit to my yoke, 46 of his strong-walled cities, as well as small cities, in their neighborhood, which are without number, I leveled them with battering rams and bringing a siege upon the engines by attacking and storming on foot by mines and tunnels and breaches. I besieged and took 200,000 people, great and small, male and female, horses, mules, asses, camels, cattle and sheep without number. I brought away from them and counted it as my spoil. Himself, Hezekiah, like a caged bird, I shut up in Jerusalem, his royal city. As for Hezekiah, a terrifying splendor of my majesty came upon him. And the Arabs and its mercenary troops, which he had brought in to strengthen Jerusalem, his royal city, deserted him. So this is his boast and pomp and pride. And, and they did have lots of uh, uh, you know, encounters with this. But a little later in Second Kings 19... The Bible tells us this. Remember that angel of the Lord that showed up in the camp of the Assyrians and 185,000 of the Assyrians were killed. 2 Kings 19.35 says, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived in Nineveh. And it came about that he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach, his god, and the Aramelech and Sharzer killed him with a sword. So he taunted and taunted and taunted. God had their back. I'm reminded of this verse in 2 Peter 2.9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. But even after that, after he's taken out, right, and uh, 200, nearly 200,000, they doubled in size. The, the empire grew again, came back with 
both power and wickedness. By this time, the city had become the largest city in the world. The inner city, which was surrounded by walls, was eight miles, okay? Eight miles in circumference. The walls were 100 feet high, okay? And it was so wide, these weren't walls that were six-inch walls, like a, like a brick or something, right? These, these, were, these were so wide that three chariots could race side by side around the top of the walls. I mean, this is massive. This is a compound of compounds. There were 1,200 towers and 14 gates, all these towers to look out. Why not 1,400 gates? Well, those are breaches, right? Those, those are you know, the, the way that an enemy could come in, but all those towers. And outside of that was a much longer outer wall, which might, you might think of the city and the suburbs. Nineveh was so feared that the other countries of the world would actually send gifts just to appease whoever was reigning at any given time. Often rulers and kings would be tied in dog trains, dog chains and made to live in kennels. The walls around Nineveh, those huge walls, 100 feet high, had a wallpaper on them of human skins, flayed body parts that were laid up there. Outside of the gates of the city, they would stack skulls of victims and heap uh, piles of skulls to instill fear of any who would dare come against Nineveh. James Montgomery Boyce said this, the Nineveh against which the prophet thunders divine denunciation had become a concentrated center of evil, the capital of a crushing tyranny, the epitome of the cruelest torture known to man. As we will see, this largest, most powerful city in the world um, that could not be weakened from outside will be completely overthrown by divine judgment, never to be inhabited again all the way from Genesis 10, all the way up to here, but never again after this destruction. In fact, the details of the book are, are so exact to, to what actually happened from the reports of the actual fall of Nineveh. Some say that there's no way Nahum could have written before the events. He wrote after the events. But we believe that God's Word is inspired, so we can't believe that. <laughs> this is a, a vision. Now, does Nineveh sound familiar to you? Is there any another book of the Bible that actually kind of mentions Nineveh? Anybody remember? Out loud? Yeah, oh, Jonah, yes. So when, how does Jonah fit into all this? Well, Jonah was somewhere between 100 and 140 years before. So remember, we're going backwards now, so somewhere around 760 or so. He was sent to preach to this very city. And imagine evangelists and a prophet like this that inwardly, has, he's got a message, but inwardly he's, he's like, I hope none of them repent. Right? I mean, what, what kind of, or, or when we go out evangelizing to Balboa Park and Planned Parenthood and even the rescue mission, God forbid that any one of you would have this, uh, this in, inward, I hope they don't repent, I hope they all fry, you know, whatever kind of thing. No. I mean, this is a, the most unusual thing. You have this, this disobedient prophet that runs at first. He finds himself in the belly of a sea monster. He's vomited onto land. He's recommissioned, given a second chance, and he goes and he does what he was told to do in the first place. 
Now, you would think that all the odds are against this guy. He's running. He doesn't want to do this. And here he comes, and he's grudgingly doing it, right? And I mean, you should have seen the manuscript of his sermon. I mean, it was how many pages long? Oh, wait. It was only five words. That's it. I mean, right? It was five words in the Hebrew. Yet in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. Yet in 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. I think it said it took him three days to walk through Nineveh. Remember that eight miles circumference? And it, it, I don't know if he just kept repeating it or if the Bible's just giving us a summary. But lo and behold, they repent. They actually repent. I mean, if you want to just turn back a couple of pages, it's pretty remarkable. Then the people, well, hold on. Let me just, okay. Verse 3 4. Then Jonah began to go through the city. One day's walk, he cried out and yelled, Yet in 40 days, all and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. And they called a fast. And they put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne. He laid aside his royal robe and covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by decree of the king and the nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, flock, taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink. Remember, we had a special sermon on fasting recently. That's an absolute fast. There's not even water that's allowed. But the point is, is that they repented, And also, it's a top-down type of thing. The king, leading by example, right? Put on sackcloth. And he issues that decree. They forsook their sin. Some estimates estimate that a few hundred thousand were converted on that day. That's the most successful evangelistic campaign in the history of the world. It really is. And it came from an unlikely prophet. So God can use anybody. But sadly... A couple of two or three generations later, and this is the Assyria that they had become. It only took a generation or two or three or whatever for all of that fearing God to disappear and the wickedness of men's heart rise back up. What's the lesson, men? Train the next generation, right? We've got to train our children in the ways of the Lord. We can't become indifferent, or this will happen. They, they, they do not know God. So in 760, we'll just guess r- roughly 760, Nahum would be six, probably 620. Jonah was a message of mercy by a disobedient prophet, a repenting people, and the people are spared. Nahum has a message of judgment by an obedient prophet, and they persist in their wickedness, and the people are completely destroyed. You know, nowadays you got what Spider-Man six or seven movies. I don't know. I don't really watch them, but you know. But but you got the first one here, the number one movie. If this was Hollywood, Nineveh, a city that repents. And then the sequel comes around, and it's Nineveh, a great kingdom that is destroyed. Well, the structure is, uh, as I said, this first eight verses is a, a really a, a hymn of praise to God. It's beautifully said. It's very similar to Psalm 24, Psalm 96, Psalm 68. Let God arise. Let his enemies be scattered. 
And let those who hate him flee before God as smoke is driven away, so drive them away as wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish before God. But let the righteous be glad. Let them exult before God. Yes, let them rejoice in gladness. In chapter 2, the fall and the overthrow of the city. And then chapter 3 gives vivid descriptions of how that fall came. Now, let's jump in to verse 2. God is an avenging God. I've already said this is a victory hymn uh, dedicated to the divine warrior who fights for his people. And it's important that we understand the character of God. When we find ourselves in trouble, we do well to look unto God because we remember his character, we remember his attributes, we remember he's a refuge. And that's what Nahum does, is he reminds the people of God of the very characteristics and attributes of God. Even in your Bible where it says, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord occurs several times, actually five times, just in verses 2 and 3. Yahweh is this. Hudson Taylor reminded himself of who God was, the founder of the China Inland Mission. He believed China, after he was there, needed a thousand missionaries in the next five years. And he told everyone and prayed and sent message back to England and all of that. And his friends said it was impossible, but he answered, when I look at a map of China, I cannot see how I could ask for less. And then when I look at the promises of God, I do not see why I should ask for less. And he also used to say, have faith in God. Hold to the faithfulness of God, knowing his, his nature and his purpose. Well, we see also the severity of God. It says here that, that a jealous and avenging God. You say, well, I thought jealousy was bad. Not, not from a divine standpoint, right? God, God is zealous about his purposes. He's jealous for his people whom he loves so much. It, it shows us the mercy and goodness of a covenant God who commits himself to steadfast love for his people. J.I. Packer in his great book, Knowing God, says the Old Testament records God's covenant as his marriage to Israel, demanding love and loyalty. Idol worship is spiritual idolatry from that marriage, provoking his jealousy. Even in the law of God, you shall not worship them or serve them. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation. We too must give God our all, right? It says in Deuteronomy 4, so watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against the Lord your God has commanded you, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Now he uses a play on words here, um, using really the, the same word, um, slight variations, but certainly the same root, of avenging and vengeance. He uses it three times in this verse alone. Vengeance is a retributive uh, punishment for a wrong that is done. And all these terrible wrongs. And you know, in Hebrew, if you double a word, it's for great emphasis. If you triple it, it's intensified immensely. Right? Where else do we see a word 
three times, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And, and here, it's triple that he's an avenging God. And you say, well, well, I don't like that. Where's my God of love? Well, we're going to get to that because it's very interrelated, right? Remember, Jonathan Edwards preached a famous sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. He used this as his text, Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. Vengeance is mine. In due time their foot will slip, for the calamity, for their calamity is near, and the appending things are hastened upon them. Psalm 94, O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Well, as I said, that's not popular. Talking about a God of wrath, talking about a vengeful God, um, is not popular today. People like to think of God as being sentimental, uh, perhaps even um, that rocking chair, you know, just about just above this roof, like, you know, not altogether transcendent, but very near, right? And, and, and they, they kind of look at God like that. People who come up with their own description of God, you know, when we're out of Angela, how many times you try to tell a truth about God, and they go, well, I don't believe that. My God isn't like that. My God does this. My God says that I'm allowed to do this, and all of these kinds of things. That's a that is an idol, right? You can make idols out of wood and stone using tools. You can make idols in the mind by twisted theology. Jesus himself, when he gives the first and second greatest commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself and all of that. And then he goes on and says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus claims that these statements are consistent with the teaching of all the prophets, including Nahum. You see that? And then we have to remember when Jesus tells us to love our neighbor, he's quoting Leviticus. And you go back to Leviticus 19.18, and it says, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear a grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus is saying, you shall love your neighbor. You're not to take vengeance. God is a vengeful God. He will take vengeance. And lo and behold, Paul agrees with Jesus and Nahum when he says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. And so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. So we are to trust a God who sees, a God who, who nothing gets past him, a, a God who sees and, and will repay, and to see that Paul and Jesus and Nahum and Moses are all in agreement. I put this quote in the email from one of the commentators. It says, God's fierce love for us kindles his jealousy when we give our hearts and souls and minds to any other love, God's love also ignites His wrath against any who would draw away, draw us away from Him. Didn't Jesus say a similar thing about leading the little ones astray? It'd be better if He had a millstone around His neck than to be thrown into the heart of the sea. Woe is anyone who would lead godly ones away. <laughs> Cult leaders, <laughs> right? many other applications. So this is where a healthy knowledge of the doctrine of God is essential. That's vital even in our day. 
to understand who God is, to have a robust theology, as it were. God is full of love and undeserved sovereign mercy towards us, but He also is a God of wrath against sin. Romans 2, Paul writes, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to your deeds. A jealous and avenging, God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, but he reserves, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. This is the idea to guard and, and to protect. He reserves that. The whole human race is guilty. And even our own personal wickedness. Paul says, Romans 3, there is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There is none who seeks God. We've all turned aside. Together they have become useless, and there is none who does good, not even one. You see, we are so utterly dependent upon the righteousness of Christ imputed to our account. That's why the doctrine of justification is so beautiful. Right after that, all these quoting of all those Psalms that Paul does in Romans 3, in the middle of Romans 3, what does he go into? The doctrine of justification by faith alone. If it weren't for that, who could stand before this holy God? It's Christ's perfect righteousness imputed to my account that enables me to stand. John Calvin said, the gospel cannot be faithfully preached without summoning the whole world as guilty to the very judgment seat of God. A couple points of application as we end. God's judgment is an expression of his severity, but also his goodness to his people. We need to understand that where there's no justice without punishment against sin, right? God cannot wink at sin. He cannot ignore it. He can't overlook it. And, and that there's no salvation unless Jesus took the punishment that we deserved. In our Lord's Supper meditation this morning around the Lord's table, we, we looked at Isaiah 53. And, and what does it say? He was a substitute. He stood in our place. And then, obviously, really, the divine warrior is the main character, or you can think of Christ as the main character of this book. So how does all this apply to us? Well, it may seem irrelevant. Nineveh is a city that's been destroyed for 2,600 years. Um, it was a, a capital of an aggressive superpower. Uh, there was threatened danger to the people of God, but we see superpowers all around the world right now. We see them persecuting Christians. I mean, North Korea, Iran, Pakistan, India, the list goes on. China even now more. Um, like Judah, we see unchecked wickedness all around us. How long, O oh Lord, we want to cry out? Some of us question if God is indifferent. He's not acting right away. He's not on our timetable. He's, you know, we hold up our watch. No, away with all of that. Judah kind of, Judah kind of felt the same way. All that taunting in 701 that I read about with King Hezekiah, I mean, there was a lot of destruction that Assyria brought against Judah, even though Judah was vindicated and, and, and preserved. But there was, God did not answer that until now, like 90 years later, right? Till the, the actual fall of Nineveh. God's timetable is best. What a great encouragement it is for us with the difficulties and trials 
that we, have, that we just sung about, that we are reminded that God is on his throne. He sees the difficulties. He sees the trials that each one of us go through. Uh, and, you know, what we share in prayer meeting and what we share with our dear friends and with our spouses is just often a fragment, a fraction of, of the difficulties that we face in this life. But we need to be reminded we serve a God who sees every one of those aches and pains and, and trials and difficulties. We need to see him as our divine warrior who will come and defend us in his time. He is able to utterly destroy the superpowers of this day, but also the super trials that we walk through. It's only Christ trusting in him and his righteousness imputed to our account, as I said earlier, that, that, that we can have confidence. He waged a, a war not against flesh and blood, but against Satan himself. He wipes our wickedness away by imputing his perfect righteousness. Do you know Jesus Christ today? There's no other way of salvation. There is no other way of salvation. Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. But some people get to the Father apart from me. That's all it says. Nobody gets to the Father apart from me. It's only through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the comfort that even a text that speaks of your vengeance and you being an avenging God can bring us as your people. Lord, we pray that you would allow this book to be instructive for us as we see all types of wickedness and applications from human trafficking and many other things in this book that we'll talk about. Lord, we pray that you would give us understanding. Lord, uh, we thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen.